Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Hey guys, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, if you haven't met me before. Uh, look, it's, um, it's good to be here. If you guys have had a good weekend, um, I'm, I'm feeling like super clean and fresh. I don't know about you guys. Not at all sticky and disgusting. So um, hope that's been the case for you guys. Look, um, I'm, I'm keen to get stuck in. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, there's a lot that we're going to uh, be thinking about today. Um, now, not all of us use social media uh, very much. But if you're someone that, who does, you might be familiar with the phrase uh, getting left on red right, or getting left on scene. Okay? Um, which is kind of talking about when you've sent someone a private message or a text and you can see that they've opened it and they've seen it, um, but you never got a reply, all right? They've just left you on red. Um, now, if you're not familiar with this phrase at all, um, it's sort of like leaving a message on, on someone's answering machine, all right? And they listen to it, but then they never call you back, all right? Um, now all the Gen Zs and Millennials are like, who would leave a voicemail? Like, are you crazy? Um, so, that, yeah, anyway, but different experiences, um, we, we've kind of had that sense of like not hearing back from someone. Now, there's countless valid reasons, right, why someone doesn't immediately respond to another person's message, okay? Life's busy. But either way, in our digital age, uh, there can be an assumption whether among friends or, or employers or family members or others um, that we are constantly contactable. Um, and people can feel hurt if something goes unanswered for some time. And this experience of, of reaching out and feeling ignored it doesn't just happen in social circumstances, does it? Sometimes it, it might be reaching out to an, an institution or an organization or a service uh, and feeling like your cry for help was left unanswered. Um, whether it's within church or, or Centrelink or, or NDIS um, or your, your teacher or your pastor or your employer. There are all sorts of circumstances where a person might reach out for support and, and feel like it just fell on deaf ears. But there's one exception uh, where that never happens, one relationship where our cries for help are always heard and never ignored, even if we don't see it at the time. And of course, that's with God. All right? Pretty much every year uh, during January, we preach through a handful of psalms. All right. um, a book of the Bible made up of various songs and hymns about God and to God, um, written by people like King David. And one of the things that I love about Psalms is just the real and, and open-hearted way that the writers cry out to God. Psalms is just full of people calling out to God, calling out in despair, calling out in gratitude, calling out in frustration, uh, calling out in praise. All sorts of things. Um, today, we're looking at Psalm 6, a psalm of David, and, and it's no different to any of that. Have a look at verse 9. Psalm 6, verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. So in Psalm 6, we see David calling out to God, and God listens and receives his cry for help. God doesn't ignore, ignore us. God hears and accepts our prayers. And when it comes to what David is calling out for, there are various things he mentions, as we'll see. But I reckon they're, they're all helpfully captured by, by one particular line in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. O Lord, 
deliver my life. O Lord, deliver my life. David is calling out to God to deliver him, to deliver him in various ways and from various things. And so what we're going to see and appreciate from Psalm 6 today is that our God delivers. Our God delivers. And so we're going to work our way through the psalm, uh, mostly from start to finish. Um, And along the way, I want to highlight four ways in particular that God delivers people. Um, Four ways. And the first example is that God delivers people from discipline. Our God delivers people from discipline. Now, don't worry if that seems a bit vague. It'll become clearer as we look at it in context. And we find this right at the start of the psalm in verse 1. Check out verse 1. Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So David begins his psalm with a plea for God to spare him from God's anger and wrath, to be merciful to David in his sin, and not rebuke or discipline him. Now, we don't know exactly what sin David had in mind here, or or even if he did have particular sin in mind. Okay, It might have been just a general awareness of his sinful nature and his need for mercy from God. Uh, Or it could have been in the wake of particular sin that that David found himself facing the consequences for. Um, Maybe David was looking back to his sin with Bathsheba, um, committing adultery with her and orchestrating the death of her husband, or, um, or his inaction when one of his sons, Amnon, raped one of his daughters, Tamar. Or how he mishandled another son of his, Absalom, watching him grow more and more bitter until Absalom led a rebellion against David where countless died. Or it could be David's response to witnessing 70,000 people, Israelites, die in judgment from God, which God sent as a result of David's sin. Regardless, any of these possibilities, David knows the anger and the wrath he deserves and the severity of the discipline he will face. But as severe as David's plight is and as complex as all of those circumstances are, the response is somehow really simple. He cries to God for mercy. O Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. O Lord, don't discipline me in your wrath. Now, to be clear, we aren't simply talking about judgment for sin in the eternal sense. David, David faced judgment and consequences as discipline for his sin here on earth throughout his life, okay? His first child with Bathsheba was stillborn. Um, After Absalom's rebellion, David was presented by a choice of judgment for his sin between Israel suffering famine, uh, David fleeing as enemies relentlessly pursued him, or Israel suffering pestilence and death. He had to choose. Now, David is talking about the discipline and the rebuke of sin that comes here and now as consequences and judgment for sin. And he's asking God to spare him from it and deliver him from it. And it's worth noting here that while it would be very gracious of God to deliver David from the discipline that he deserves, that discipline isn't a bad thing in itself. God is loving in his mercy, but he's also loving in his discipline. Um, parenting is a, is a clear example of how both mercy and discipline can be loving, all right? Whether you have kids of your own or you just remember being a child yourself, you know that discipline is crucial to our growth and development as people. And mercy and grace is also powerful in key moments as well. Sometimes there's a valuable lesson to be learned. Other times the lesson might already be learned and there's an opportunity to show mercy. 
Right? There's a wisdom in parenting of discerning when to show mercy and when to discipline, and we don't always get it right, but God does. Uh, come with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Sunny read this out for us earlier, but I reckon it's worth checking out again. So come with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll look at it from verse 3. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For, all, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So mercy is loving and discipline is loving. Discipline isn't a bad thing. It's actually a helpful thing. And yet, it's also a painful thing. And David is crying out to God that he be spared from it. Please, God. I'm aware of my sin. I'm repentant of it. I've put it to death. I've grown. Please spare me from discipline in this time. And we can see that our God delivers people from discipline, but we can also see that there's no promise or guarantee that he will. All right? God accepting David's prayer and plea in this instance doesn't mean that David never faced discipline or that he never would again. We see David face discipline and rebuke from God many times, and Hebrews makes it clear that actually this is something that God's people should expect from him, and actually one of the ways in which God loves us. So, how do we respond to God's discipline? How do you respond to God's discipline? If you're, if you're repentant of your sin, you've turned away from it, and you've come to God for forgiveness, but you're you're struggling with the consequences and the pain you're experiencing in the wake of that sin, it's okay to cry out to God for mercy. God will hear you. But if you do have a clear sense that God is disciplining you and that's continuing to happen, are you able to remember in that moment that God still loves you and it's for your good? It can be a hard thing to see in the moment itself, but no matter, remember, no matter how God answers our prayers, he loves you. That was the first area that we're looking at where God delivers us. But the second area where David cries out to God for deliverance is from illness, as he struggles in his physical and mental and spiritual health. Uh, our God delivers people from illness. Check out verse 2. So Psalm 6, verse 2. David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So David asks for grace and healing. He says he's languishing. 
meaning he's deteriorating and wasting away. He says his bones are troubled. And he also says his soul is greatly troubled. Now, later on in this psalm, in in verse 10, um, David references like human enemies that he's been dealing with. And there's a good chance that the circumstances between David and his enemies is going to have something to do with David's suffering in both his physical and mental health. It could be during the rebellion of his son Absalom when David had fled and was on the run. Uh, And if that would be the case, considering the toil of that journey and the the threat of attack and the responsibility for the people who fled with him, um, it would almost be certain that David at times would have experienced exhaustion uh, as well as physical pain and ill health. And obviously the anxiety of all of that, not to mention the hurt and the devastation of his own son betraying him in that way, would take a toll on him mentally and emotionally. Have a look at verse 6 to get a sense of David's emotional state as he writes this psalm. Psalm 6, verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. So his emotional state is in tatters, and he describes it vividly. David's bones are troubled, and his soul is greatly troubled, and so he prays for healing and restoration. And again, we need to remember that as David prays this, he knows that there's no promise of healing or restoration happening. God had made a unique promise to David about one of his descendants being on the throne forever, the Messiah, the Christ, who would be Jesus. But the one he fled from in the rebellion was one of his descendants, uh, his son who was trying to usurp the throne. Whatever the circumstances were, there was no guarantee here that David would be physically, mentally, or emotionally restored. And this is worth acknowledging because as we see instances of God delivering people from illness of various kinds, we can sometimes assume that God will always do so. We can invent promises from God that he never made and hold him accountable to promises that he never actually made. And many of us here are struggling right now in our physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, And if you aren't struggling yourself, you surely know of other faithful disciples who are. It's okay to call out to God, like we see in the Psalms, when our bodies and our souls are troubled and ask him for healing and restoration. And it's also crucial to remember when we come to God in the name of his son Jesus, that he hears us, he listens to us, and he loves us. And that is always true, even if he doesn't respond with healing. When you witness or read about people being restored in their physical or mental health, that doesn't mean that they are more loved or have been more faithful than someone who continues to live with chronic struggles their whole life. Come with me to 2 Corinthians. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is really helpful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul the Apostle shares with the church in Corinth a very kind of candid and personal experience of his own. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So as we're thinking about um, God hearing our prayers and how he answers them in different ways, this is Paul the Apostle sharing something of his own experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we don't know what the, the thorn in Paul's flesh was in a more literal sense. We know that it humbled him. And it kept him from becoming conceited over his role in God's revelations. But we don't know much more than that. It could have been a, a physical ailment. Uh, it could have been something in his mind. Uh, it could have been a relentless temptation, an ongoing battle with certain sin. But Paul's point isn't about the specifics of what it is. His point is that three times he pleaded with the Lord that it would leave him. And God's answer was no. No. It wasn't that God didn't hear his prayer, God answered him. It wasn't that God didn't care or didn't love him, God was gracious to Paul. God said, it's okay, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, you're okay. And in your weakness, you will glorify me even more. You will do better and greater things as my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so... Even though it's clear that this was a severe struggle for Paul, he actually boasted in his weakness uh, and other weaknesses of his so that the power of Christ rested upon him. He said, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Particularly if you ever have felt like you can relate to any of those sort of experiences, the relentlessness of, some, of something like that, to have that perspective in that moment and through those seasons. When it comes to physical health, spiritual health, mental health, God can deliver people from illness, but he also works through illness to display his glory in you. And in all cases, know that if you're coming to him in prayer in Christ's name, that he hears you and he loves you. And the third way we're reminded of how God can deliver his people in Psalm 6 is a doozy. It's a big one. David reminds us that God can deliver people from death. Our God delivers people from death. Psalm 6, verse 4. Check out verse 4. Psalm 6, verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? So the word Sheol is Hebrew, and it refers to a place of the dead. So David calls out to God to deliver his life, to save him and deliver him from death. And there's different ways that we can interpret that. Okay, um, some, some interpret these verses to suggest that people in the era of the Old Testament, or at the very least David in particular, didn't have a hope of life after death. Um, kind of based on that question, who in Sheol, in death, will be able to give you praise? Um, but there are plenty of other examples 
that actually do, do point to David trusting in God's power of hope beyond death. Um, first of all, David is trusting in a promise that one of his descendants, the Messiah, will sit on God's throne forever. And when his first child with Bathsheba was stillborn, David actually also said, he will not return to me, but I will go to him. And we also see various allusions to hope beyond death throughout David's Psalms. But there's a couple of other ways to interpret this as well. It's, it seems plausible that in the wake of the sin that, that David cried out to be delivered from judgment over, that we just kind of read about, that David could be speaking of death from the point of view of someone who actually fears going astray from God as an object of judgment and eternal death in, in Sheol. And also, there's a reality that David's life is in peril in an immediate sense, right? As we've discussed, the, the, the possible context of him fleeing for his life during Absalom's rebellion. I mean, there's countless other examples of, of David having enemies and his life being on the line. And he shared he is languishing and his bones and soul are troubled. So we can confidently assume that he's concerned about the prospect of death in an immediate sense, regardless of the assurance he feels eternally. And there are two things that I want to pick up about David's call for deliverance from death here that I think are worth reflecting on. Two things I want to, I want to pick up on. Firstly, just like God delivers people from discipline and from illness in some instances, but not in all cases, there's also no promise that God will deliver someone from the immediate prospect of death. Sometimes he will. Uh, as we actually have see with David's life, when he was delivered from, from death, when King Saul pursued him and tried to kill him time and time and time again. And yet, if you were around with us last term, term four last year, uh, you remember at the start of 1 Kings, we read about when David ultimately still died. And of course, we know death ultimately happens to everyone we know. God always hears our prayers and he can rescue people from an immediate, tangible danger of death, but we can't assume that as a promise. And yet, of course, God has made a promise of delivering us from death eternally. For all of those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for redemption and forgiveness for sin, while we face momentary death in this life, Jesus died and rose alive again. His bones aren't in the ground. He's alive right now. And he sets everyone who believes in him free from death as well. Come with me to Acts chapter 13. All right, this, is a, this is a helpful one. Acts chapter 13, back in the New Testament again. thinking about the threat of death in that immediate sense, but also that hope, that promise of life beyond death eternally through Jesus. All right, have a look. Acts chapter 13, and go down to verse 32. Acts 13, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David... 
after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by, everyone, by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So as our God delivers people from death... The first thing we've noted is that while it's, it's not a promise in this life, it is a promise in eternity. A hope in Jesus Christ guaranteed for us by God's Holy Spirit living within us. The second thing I want to draw our attention to is that while David's concerned for his own life, he also recognizes that even if God does deliver him from death, that it's not just for his sake it's also for God's sake. And in fact, it's more so for God's sake. Have a look back in Psalm 6, check out verse 4. Let's read verse 4 and 5 again. Psalm 6, verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David pleads for the sake of God's love and with the primary concern being God's praise and glory. Now, this doesn't mean that it isn't also for David's sake, but it does mean that first and foremost, the most important thing is always God and his glory. Do we have this in mind as we cry out to God to deliver us from various things, whether with a death or something else? Do we have eternal perspective recognizing why we're here and our purpose to praise and glorify God with our whole lives and our deaths. I personally feel challenged by this. I reckon we all probably do. Even if we've understood this for a long time, we might know that we exist for God's glory, but our sinful nature means that we need to keep returning to this and reminding ourselves of it. Our God delivers us both for our sake and his sake. Ask yourself if if seeking God's glory is first and foremost in your prayers. And lastly, the fourth and final way we'll look at today that we can see David crying out to God for deliverance is from his enemies. Our God delivers people from enemies. Check out verse 8. Psalm 6, verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So David is crying out to God to not only be spared from death at the hands of his enemies, as we just saw before, he's also calling out to God for his enemies to be held accountable. He's crying out to God for justice, to be delivered from his enemies and for his enemies to be put to shame. Psalm 6 starts out with David sharing that he is greatly troubled and finishes with David saying his enemies will be greatly troubled. Through prayer, David's anguish actually becomes his enemy's anguish. God delivers David from his enemies. And this is vindication for David against his enemies and justice for the actions of his enemies. And so in some ways... This symmetry of of shifting from David's troubles at the start of the psalm to his enemy's troubles at the, the end of the psalm has hope to it, but 
it also might seem to carry a kind of tension to the psalm as well. I don't know if you kind of caught that. On one hand, we see David crying out to God for mercy for his sin, to not rebuke him in God's anger or discipline him in God's wrath. On the other hand, we, we see David asking for his enemies to be held to account for their sin and to be put to shame. How do those prayers sit alongside each other? Can they sit alongside each other? And this is something worth reflecting on because this tension isn't just in Psalm 6, right? It's all through Scripture and it's actually at the heart of the gospel and the message that Jesus brings. Is God merciful or just? Does he hold evildoers to account or does he forgive? Of course, the answer is both, but how does that work? How does that make sense? How does God deliver sinners from judgment while also delivering people from their enemies with judgment? It's time to bring out some of those Sunday school answers because, as always, the answer is Jesus, right? The answer is Jesus. When God forgave sinners, he wasn't ignoring sin. When God delivers sinners from judgment, it's not because he simply withheld judgment for that sin. It's because he poured that judgment out, that judgment for sin, on Jesus instead of you. God justifies sinners by giving his one and only son, Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, to pay the penalty for sin, to pay the penalty of God's anger in our place when he died on the cross. He justifies sinners while upholding justice and the penalty for sin. In, in Romans 3, Paul explains that through Jesus, God judges and forgives sin. God is both just and the justifier. And this is massive, because while we can celebrate that God delivers his people from, from discipline at times, and in Jesus celebrate that he delivers us from his wrath eternally, we don't want to walk away with an impression that God doesn't care about sin. And that by extension, he, he doesn't therefore care about victims of sin. God absolutely cares. He hates sin more than any person does, more than any person could comprehend. And he cares about injustice and about people who have endured and suffered under the sinful actions of others. He hasn't ignored anything. Just like the other things we've looked at today, God can bring justice for sin right here and now in this life, but there isn't a promise that that will always be the case. And we know it often isn't. But it is a promise eternally. God has promised that when Jesus will return, all things will be reconciled to Christ. All things will be judged. God hates sin. Think of, think of the nicest person you know, right? You don't have to say their name out loud, right? But think of the nicest person you know for a second. In order for God to forgive them, the only way was to give his one and only son to die to suffer and be crucified, to die the death of a criminal. That's what it took for sin to be dealt with. Jesus, God himself, as a sinless and perfect man, came to earth and died for that person and all other people. Forgiveness came at an unfathomable cost. That's how seriously God takes sin. So if, if you have suffered under sin 
at the hands of someone else, know that, that God knows. He sees you and he grieves for you. If you have caused someone else to suffer, know that God knows. He sees you. And even in that moment of seeing you, he loves you so much that he is offering forgiveness by sacrificing his own son to face the judgment for your sin in your place. Every one of us, right, are sinners and rely on Jesus to be right before God. And to varying degrees, every one of us has suffered under the sin of others as well. For all of us, our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. Absolutely no sin will go unanswered or unaccounted for. The question is, are you facing the judgment for your sin yourself? Or are you trusting in Jesus, knowing that he faced it in your place when he died on the cross and rose alive again, overcoming that judgment for you? I'm going to finish up by reading a passage from 2 Thessalonians. If you can, it's worth flicking there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read from verse 5, and it's helpful as we, we think about this tension of mercy and justice and the hope we have in Jesus and how Jesus actually accomplishes both. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That passage is both sobering and encouraging at the same time, isn't it? The righteous judgment of God who considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, perhaps not in this life, but eternally, all sin will be held to account. Not just with destruction, but eternal destruction, away from the presence of God. It's terrifying to think about. But he will come to be glorified in his saints, in those who have repented and whose sin was paid for by Jesus, in those who believe. If you aren't trusting in Jesus, please, please repent of your sin and believe in him. If you are trusting in Jesus, rejoice. Continue repenting and returning to Jesus, knowing the guaranteed hope you have in him. Our God delivers. Follow Jesus and he will deliver you. I'm going to pray. Pray with me.
Dear God, thank you that you are a God who hears our pleas, who accepts our prayers. Thank you for your love and the way you show that to us in both your mercy and in your your discipline as our Heavenly Father. As scary as it is to ask, please reveal our sin to us and bring us to repentance, that we might not need to suffer the rebuke and discipline that is often painful. But please help us to trust you, being assured of your love for us in mercy and in rebuke. Please heal and restore those of us who are struggling with our physical, mental or spiritual health. Please sustain us while we continue struggling with those things, knowing that we have a promised hope of eternal life in a new creation with new bodies where there is no more crying or pain. Please keep us safe and deliver us both from danger and those who wish to do us harm. And to rejoice in the hope of Jesus that you will ultimately bring justice for sin and deliver your people from the death from death to eternal life with you. <clears throat> for those of us here who don't have that hope in Jesus, we pray that you would stir their hearts, open their eyes, reveal yourself to them and save them, that they would turn to you today. In your son's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.